The problems were in the walls. Mice, mold, and lead paint. Tenants in public housing complexes in Illinois were trying everything they could to make their conditions more livable. Constant cleaning, repeated maintenance requests. One mother even sprayed Raid around her two-year-old's bed each night. There's a difference between having a mouse or two that you can catch with some sticky traps and the things that we all do versus having a mice infestation that has gone on so long that these are now what are considered house mice. They aren't coming in from the outside. They're breeding in the walls and they're living in behind stoves and in couches and in plush furniture. On this week's episode, Molly Parker, an investigative reporter for the Southern Illinoisan and a member of ProPublica's local reporting network, walks us through her deep dives into public housing. Her reporting found the federal government failed many of the citizens it was supposed to be sheltering. These are already communities that have been underserved. Places like Carroll and St. Louis, even if you're not in public housing, you know, your community maybe is really challenged with service deliveries and, you know, the school system, things that are just lacking in resources due to the fact that you don't have a tax base. So we're talking about underserved communities within underserved communities. I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. A little over 30 years ago, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, more commonly known as HUD, swooped in and seized control of the East St. Louis Housing Authority. Rampant corruption among local officials, mixed with shoddy conditions for public housing residents, prompted HUD to step in. The act of seizing control of a local authority like this is called a receivership. This marked the first time that HUD, as an agency, came in unannounced and seized control of the Housing Authority in 1985. Really, receiverships are pretty rare, especially these administrative receiverships where HUD comes in and takes them over since 1985. It's happened about 18 more times. That's Molly Parker, an investigative reporter with the Southern Illinoisan and a member of ProPublica's local reporting network. HUD first took control of the East St. Louis Housing Authority in 1985. That was five administrations ago, when Ronald Reagan was president. There was extreme mismanagement on the local level. A former executive director was indicted and served prison time for their role in a bid rigging scheme. The building conditions were horrendous. Rats, roaches, lack of heat, the buildings generally falling down around people. More than three decades later, in September 2017, Ben Carson, the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, returned the Housing Authority to local control. The residents were at risk, and the future of our children was at risk. Not anymore, he said last year. During that event, HUD Secretary Carson congratulated HUD for the work it had done here. And I had, the day before the event, been out and meeting with people who live in the apartment complexes and found that their reality did not match with the statements that were made the next day at the event. A HUD spokesman told Molly that during his visit, Carson didn't tour any of the East St. Louis housing complexes. And on top of that, there were red flags that suggested the complexes weren't as transformed as Carson declared. HUD's own inspectors had recently failed nine of East St. Louis's 12 public housing properties. A month before Carson's visit, a young mother was killed by an intruder who entered through the broken first floor window she had tried to get fixed. And weeks before that incident, a 60-year-old disabled man died after an arson fire in a high-rise apartment where residents had made repeated pleas for better security. 
still frustrating to hear the federal government sort of declare that this is considered a success for receivership when the reality in people's homes is that they're so worried about their children. The units hadn't been painted for 20 years. We found evidence that HUD under receivership may not have been testing accurately or continuing to test and monitor for peeling lead paint in one of the large family buildings. How could the receivership in East St. Louis be declared a success when conditions for residents were still so bad? And it's complicated. You know, it was over 32 years. So we did find that improvements had been made early on with the buildings and the financial condition. But more lately, that those building conditions had been neglected and were deteriorating under HUD's watch. Some of the neglect stemmed from the fact that over the last two decades, the federal government has been pulling back on its commitment to fund public housing, Molly said. And HUD, therefore, has been extremely challenged in keeping up with mandating that these housing authority buildings are in compliance with the law, which requires that they are decent, safe, and sanitary. Just three months after Carson's visit, Molly was selected as a member of ProPublica's inaugural local reporting network. The grant allows local newsrooms to fund the salary of a reporter for a year to focus on an investigative project. They also receive guidance and support from ProPublica, where their stories are co-published. Now, Molly had the chance to find answers to her many questions. What is it that HUD considers legally decent, safe, and sanitary? How do these inspection systems work? How do receiverships work? Where is the real system-wide failures happening? Is it because HUD isn't doing something right? Is it that their grading systems aren't working? Is it a financial challenge due to Congress cutting their budget, reducing their staffs? and then leaving them short-staffed to try to oversee all these housing authorities. I think it's probably all of those things. But what you don't hear from HUD is a lot of honest and tough talk about what it is that's actually happening. To understand HUD's role in East St. Louis, you need to travel about 150 miles south to Cairo, Illinois. That's where Molly first got the inkling to investigate public housing. Alexander County is the southernmost county in Illinois. It includes the city of Cairo, which sets right at the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. And that's in our coverage area. We're basically the only paper in about 15 counties. Back in 2015, Molly received an email that contained HUD documents related to the review of the Alexander County Housing Authority. I read the reports and... They were shocking, and the things that the Housing Authority was accused of were pretty extensive about going on trips, about conflicts of interest, hiring relatives, excessive benefits, moving funds around, extensive violations of the Civil Rights Act. And so this, of course, prompted my curiosity, to say the least. Public housing residents told Molly about their experiences with mice and mold that they had been battling for years. We talked to the hospital in town, and they had seniors coming in with breathing problems, children that would get rashes in the shower from the mold. And so these are really serious health and safety issues. HUD put the Alexander County Housing Authority into federal receivership in February 2016 for gross mismanagement. A year passed. And in early 2017, HUD still hadn't announced what its next steps were for the approximately 200 families living in the two 1940s-era buildings in Cairo. Residents told Molly, Hey, yeah, HUD's been down here, but we're still living in these poor conditions. We still don't know what's going to happen. Rumors had been circulating that the two public housing complexes, known as Elmwood and McBride, were going to be shut down. 
Even the school district and city officials were growing concerned. In Cairo, a town of 2,400 people, almost 40% of the school district's children live in these two buildings. This is a tiny school district, so they're just not getting good communication about do we need to be preparing for a mass exodus of students? Should we be trying to come up with some way to rebuild? Like, what is happening? No one was getting answers from HUD. That's when Molly and her editors at the Southern Illinoisan decided to hold a community forum. We invited all of our federal politicians, our state and local politicians, and we invited HUD. And by this point, it was right at the transition, and HUD Secretary Ben Carson had just been named. We sent him a personal invitation in the mail, printed off our stories. They were planning their forum for April, and about a month or so before the event, HUD gave Molly a call. We've got your messages. We're going to be having our own community meeting down there. You're welcome to attend. So we called off our community meeting because, okay, so HUD's going to have their thing. Let's figure out what they're going to do first. HUD had scheduled their meeting the week before the Southern Illinoisans was set to take place. Families packed one of the Baptist churches in town to hear what officials had to say. We were the only media there. They let us attend. And that's when they broke the news and they told all the residents, hey, we're moving everyone out. We're going to help you. We're going to provide vouchers. We're not making you homeless, but a lot of people are going to have to leave Cairo. And it was an extremely emotional, emotional night. A HUD Office of Inspector General report, which is the agency's investigative arm, later found that HUD had assigned inflated scores to Cairo's public housing complexes during inspections. Public housing complexes, they were so far gone. They were so unsafe that there was no option but to tear them down. There was no money to rebuild. Yet these properties up until six years or so ago, we're receiving really high scores. The housing authority for a long time was rated a high performer or at least a standard performer, which means, hey, HUD thinks you're doing a great job. In just a few years, how did these buildings become so deplorable that HUD determined people shouldn't even be living in them? That to me didn't make sense because Properties can see a downturn quickly, especially if you had like natural disaster or flooding. But generally speaking, the kind of deterioration we're talking about happens over the course of many, many years, right? Things that lead to cracks in foundations that give rise to a mice infestation that allow plumbing leaks and that lead to toxic mold. Those things don't just quickly happen for the most part. And this happens over years and frankly, decades. Molly's reporting on residents and interactions with HUD and Cairo laid the groundwork for her investigation into East St. Louis's public housing woes. The situation was so tragic there. The inspection reports, the numbers, all that stuff is the same nationally. And so that's how we were able to, I believe, use Cairo as a lesson to learn about what's happened in one small American city, say about what's happening with federal HUD policy elsewhere. Molly had seen firsthand the decay and neglect East St. Louis residents were living in, and she knew their realities didn't match Ben Carson's proclamation that the public housing complexes had been transformed. HUD's inspection scores are available online, and data showed that nine of East St. Louis's 12 public housing complexes had failed their most recent inspections. That means three-fourths of the buildings weren't earning passing scores. But to see the details of those reports, Molly had to file Freedom of Information Act requests. So I pulled those inspection reports through public records requests, and I can see that they're citing the things that tenants are telling us about. Now, so we already know these things are there because I've seen them with my own eyes. But then I'm looking at the report saying, oh, well, HUD knows they're there, too. While Molly had a suspicion HUD knew where its problem properties were, she wasn't sure if those issues had been documented. I thought, well, perhaps they're not aware. But they had, you know, when we pulled these inspection reports, we can just see 
instance after instance of what they call level three, which is the most serious citations that their inspectors are finding, citing, and providing to the agency. But trying to pin down what HUD knew took time. You have to be extremely patient if you would like to have a public records request to HUD. One of the challenges of HUD is that agency has been dramatically reduced in size and in funding over the last 20 years or so. In the 80s, they had 17,000 employees. They now have around 7,500. There's no question that HUD's information technology systems and their FOIA systems are extremely out of date, perhaps way more so than most other federal agencies. While Molly's original FOIA requests from September 2017 have yet to be fulfilled, she found an avenue that got her the report she wanted and more much faster her U.S. senators. And they offered to write a letter requesting the reports for all of Southern Illinois to HUD. And HUD makes congressional requests for information a priority. They requested this information and they received it within about a month. And so then I had access to the reports throughout Southern Illinois, which included East St. Louis. The low HUD scores were reflected in everyday life for tenants. The leaks, the infestations, the peeling paint, and the housing conditions may have contributed to some residents' deaths like Alexis Winston. Alexis is a young woman, 23-year-old mother, who had moved into the East St. Louis Housing Authority in the spring of 2017. I never met Miss Winston. She was tragically killed before I started my reporting in East St. Louis. Nearly two months before Carson's visit, Alexis was murdered by an intruder who broke into her home. On August 8, 2017, Alexis called 911 around 4 a.m. When police arrived, they found her fatally shot upstairs. Her toddler, watched nearby from a playpen. Alexis's first floor kitchen window, the one she had put in work orders to fix, was also shattered. The Belleville News Democrat, which is an excellent paper in the region of East St. Louis, had covered extensively the events leading to her death at the John Robinson homes. They really worked hard to talk about what happened, and they reported on the fact that her window was lacking a security screen. While it appeared others within the John Robinson homes, not all of them, but, you know, most others had them, Before Molly embarked on a week-long reporting trip to East St. Louis, she reached out to Alexis's relatives. They were eager to speak out and eventually went on to file a lawsuit against the East St. Louis Housing Authority. From there, we met out at the John Robinson homes. It was the first time Alexis's mom had returned, she said, since the tragedy. And she just opened up about what it was that they had done to try to get attention on what had happened there. Alexis's mom had been concerned about her daughter and grandchild moving there in the first place. But she said Alexis was eager to get out on her own and trying to establish her life. And so she felt like, look, this will be a temporary thing, which is the thing public housing is meant to be, somewhere to get her on her feet. She was trying to get a job and working at the time. One of the first times Alexis visited the public housing complex, her mom went with her. They set off a bug bomb trying to make the best of what they felt was a less-than-ideal situation. She did say, though, that Alexis didn't stay there a lot. She was concerned about her security almost from the beginning. Alexis spent most nights back in Belleville, where she had previously been living with her mom and daughter before moving to East St. Louis. When she was at the John Robinson homes, she and her sister tried to secure the broken window in other ways. And they locked it with a broom handle or whatever they could find and some nails and locked it shut. And we can see examples of other windows there that are basically, the windows are themselves inoperable, so people have locked them, which is also a safety issue, you know, in that if you had a fire and here, your window should be operable, it shouldn't be locked with boards and nails. But the housing authority said they didn't have the money to properly fix all the windows, which were old and required expensive special orders. 
Alexis's family also said she had submitted a work order request to try and get the window repaired. Molly submitted FOIA requests to see if that was the case. We were able to get the list of work orders made for the property and the dates, and we can see on there that there were numerous work order requests for window repairs. To us, that was enough to say, hey, someone here uh, at this authority or multiple tenants were complaining about their window security. So this was obviously not just an issue that one tenant was dealing with. Molly submitted the request for the work order log directly from the East St. Louis Housing Authority. You can also request the inspection reports. These are actual HUD inspection reports where HUD comes and does the oversight and checks to see how things are going. Those are also available at the Housing Authority because even though HUD does them, HUD provides them to the Housing Authority. So you can get them either location. And five days before Alexis's death, a HUD inspector had also noticed the window problems. Between the John Robinson homes where Alexis lived, in the John DeShields homes, nearly half of the inspected windows were inoperable or wouldn't lock. Over a third had damaged or missing screens, according to the inspection report. When Molly asked the housing authority why these problems hadn't been fixed, officials cited financial challenges. There's only so much money they feel like they can invest in a building that continues to require more and more money just to keep it adequate versus you could take that money and build something new. And they're constantly juggling really hard decisions. And in the meantime, residents are suffering because of it. For tenants living in public housing, it can feel like they don't have many options. People feel like, well, if I live in this house, at least it's better than not having a house. And for some people, it may be better than having to leave East St. Louis. Some people would like to leave the city altogether because it's distressed. It's not that they don't love the city. They do, but they say, hey, I want to move into a different neighborhood where I feel safe. And you can't fault them for that. At the same time, there are a lot of people who they've lived there their whole life. This is community. This is their social supports. They want to rebuild East St. Louis. And neither of these options are really available to people at this point. Public housing can be found in communities across the U.S., and reporters can start to investigate conditions in their own region. Molly recommends looking up scores for properties in your area and then visiting them yourself. But be careful of assuming the worst of all public housing. It's a dangerous perception, and it's not one I'm trying to paint, which is that all HUD-subsidized housing is bad. In fact, most HUD-subsidized housing is good. The only heartache I get from these stories is that when you point out the failures, the failures are often huge. When talking to residents... Be clear and upfront. Don't make promises you can't keep about whether your reporting will lead to improvements in their housing. You know, I just spend time with them, tell them what we're trying to do, make sure they understand that we're not here to paint a narrative about, oh, low-income people live in housing that is bad, and that means there's something wrong with them or with public housing, but trying to put this in a broader context of, no, this isn't your fault. This has been decades of disinvestment in your community and then also in public housing nationally and putting it in context. For tenants... Sharing with readers that your house is infested with mold or mice can be intimidating. There's often a worry that readers might interpret it as a problem caused by residents. And there's a fear of retaliation for speaking out about conditions. You know, I found in those cases, not everyone wants to talk. Or a lot of tenants will talk to you, but they don't want their name used. A lot of people fear retaliation from their landlords. They fear speaking out because even if conditions are bad, really, really bad, they would see homelessness as worse for their family. So we work with people. I would offer to say, hey, this is your story. I'm going to do this interview now. I'm going to be following up with you and fact-checking everything. Because to me, these aren't government officials. This is about, do you feel like you're being portrayed in a way that is empowering versus demeaning? And be careful of making judgments on what is acceptable or unacceptable housing. 
Let the residents dictate that. I've been to some places where I thought that tenants would be like, oh, this is terrible, we want action, but that might not be the case. I just generally find tenants will tell you whether they are having problems or whether things are okay. And sometimes it's, hey, yeah, we wish we could get new stoves and new cabinets. They're doing the best they can. We feel like they care about us and they're responding to our needs. To me, there's stories in that too. There's stories in the successes. Either way, getting out and talking to residents will help you build trust and may lead to more stories whether they want to be featured in the news or not. To me, you're going to get story ideas. Maybe it's not about the housing. You may find that they got an 80 and they deserve a good score and everybody's pretty happy there. But hey, their school district has some issues. Molly's investigation into East St. Louis prompted even more residents to come forward after it ran in early August. I've had residents call me and say, hey, can you look into my housing conditions too? I live in here also. Like, I've got this going on or that going on. Her reporting has also caught the attention of federal lawmakers. U.S. Senators Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth have sent letters to Ben Carson demanding answers about what HUD plans to do in East St. Louis and questioning whether the agency followed federal law in Thebes another town in southern Illinois, where public housing buildings were shut down. The senators cited Molly's investigation. U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, of course, is from East St. Louis. He spent his entire youth growing up in East St. Louis. So it particularly, I think, got his attention. And Molly is continuing to draw attention to the issue. ProPublica and the Southern Illinoisan held three community meetings in East St. Louis to talk directly with residents. They also introduced tenants to their tool, HUD Inspect which allows users to look up inspection scores for public housing in their community. They even have a template readers can follow to file records requests to get inspection reports. While digging in East St. Louis and Southern Illinois, Molly has also been expanding her reporting nationwide to hone in on HUD's policies. In Cairo and East St. Louis, she noticed properties with deplorable conditions received passing grades for years. But even when the scores dropped, change wasn't swift. But then I started looking at the full data sets. I could just look at enough just in my region to say, hey, there's something weird here. If like a housing authority building is able to get like a 91 year and then the next year it's a 20 and then it's a 70. I'm like, what do these scores really mean? Because again, intuitively, I know that buildings, generally speaking, deteriorate over time. With the help of ProPublica's data reporters, they were able to find that HUD has routinely awarded passing scores to buildings with infestations, mold and more. And despite HUD's reluctance, Molly has demanded answers. On Memorial Day, I sent a long list of questions to HUD about this, and I got a response back within three minutes that said, we'll decline comment, which prompted me to make a call. I was like, what? You can't decline comment. Surely you can provide some of the answers to this. HUD has now said that it believes the data it has online is wrong. Molly is waiting on them to provide new information related to their inspection system. The goal was to get her the info by early December, but that didn't happen. And the thing that's so incredible about this to me is this is HUD's primary oversight tool, are these inspections. And the fact that they don't even know if it is accurate is to me pretty alarming and could spell that there's lots of other problematic housing authorities out there that they don't even know about that aren't even on their radar right now. Until then, Molly plans to keep reporting to ensure that residents know that they have a right to decent, safe, and sanitary housing. I think these things matter. I think it matters that people are forced to sort of answer and talk about what's going on here. What's the real issues? This is just one small piece of it.
for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to Molly's reporting and resources for investigating housing and federal agencies. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Podcast. Podcast.